Hello and welcome to the Tech Dirt Podcast. I'm Mike Masnick. The world is increasingly technological. So we have better get methodical. Bring in precision to critical digital journalism with the singular vision of a modern monocle. Stopping the copyright bullies from pulling the wall on us. Fighting and taking on all the plate to pay to troll. Document the ways that they aim to take control. Scrutinize and do their lies and make them fold. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get hurt. To grab a shovel and dig up the tech. Today on the podcast, uh, as we noted recently, we have Corey Doctorow. Uh, we recently played an excerpt from the audiobook of his, his latest novel, Red Team Blues, narrated excellently by Will Wheaton. Uh, and now I wanted to talk about the book with Corey. Uh, as I explained in the intro to the excerpt, uh, Red Team Blues is a really fun sort of techno thriller, I would say, in which the protagonist, Martin Hench, is a forensic accountant uh, nearing retirement, I guess, uh, who specializes in finding money that the rich and powerful like to keep hidden. Uh, and uh, in the book, he helps to find a very important missing laptop. Uh, you'll have to read the book to figure out why it's so important. And that kicks off uh, a wild set of events in which he goes from normally being a red teamer, someone who is attacking systems and trying to find their flaws, to a blue teamer in which he needs to build up protections for himself, which is, I would say, an unnatural place for him to be and <laughs> presents certain challenges for him. Uh, Corey has obviously been on the podcast multiple times before. And while we're here officially to talk about this book, I'm guessing that we may talk about a bunch of other stuff as well. So, Corey, welcome back to the podcast. Oh, well, thank you, Mike. And, you know, you really nailed all of the the beats there. That's <laughs> that's that could almost be word for word the pitch I give for the book. So it's clearly you're in the, Excellent. In the sweet spot for it. <laughs> Cool. Uh, so I was going to say, you know, the the normal first question uh, that everyone asks about a book, and I often do this as well, is the sort of like, why this book? And and I was sort of tempted to ask that, but I actually, I I wanted to start with a different kind of question, which is that, and 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 maybe this is a symptom of of knowing so much of all of the work that you do, and knowing you, uh, and and you know the the work that you do on tech policy. Whenever I read your fiction works, I'm always reading it and there's a part of my brain in the back of my brain that no matter how much I try to just like enjoy the fiction, I'm thinking like, what point is Corey trying to make with, <laughs> with this book? There's some secret message in here. And, and then there's another part of my brain that's saying, no, shut up. Just read the book and enjoy the book. Don't worry about the message. So Am, am I being dumb? <laughs> like, <laughs> is there is there is there an important message? You're trying to get an important message across with the, with the the fiction, uh, or 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 you know, or is it just like this is just a fun romp? Uh, so I think that's a, a a logical or XOR where you want an and. I think it's a fun romp and it's got a it's got a message. And I want to stress that first part because I'm about to get pretty uh, gnarly and technical with your with your uh, tolerance here. Um, th there is uh, like a couple of pretty important technical uh, stories being told in this book, and then on top of that, it is a cracking yarn. Right? I, I yeah. before we started recording. Uh, I mentioned that I write when I'm anxious and during lockdown, I wrote eight books. Uh, my wife, who loves me very much and enjoys my work, nevertheless cannot read 
everything I write. It's, it's just too much. And I've made my peace with that. But when I finished this one, and it, I wrote it in six weeks flat, I, I gave it to her and uh, I said, you know, darling, I, I, uh, I know you're busy. Uh, just read the first couple of pages because I think I got something here. And then I woke up at 2.30 in the morning and she was sitting up in bed next to me with her phone. And I was like, what are you doing? And she said, well, I just had to find out how it ended. Uh, and so I knew I was really onto something and I sent it to my editor and my editor, I love him dearly. He's like a kind of an older brother to me. We met when I was 17 on an online service. He's edited every book, I, uh, every novel I've ever written. Uh, and I think even with all that said that he would not think that I was being mean or incorrect when I said he is not the world's most reliable email correspondent and it can often take a long time to get a response from him. And so when I sent him this book, I thought it'd be months. And instead, again, I heard back the next day, just four lines in an email, all in caps. That was a fucking ride. Whoa. Uh, and he called my agent and bought three of them. And there's, there's, there's two more coming over the next year in a bit. Uh, so I, I want to s- just stress this because the thing I'm about to say is eye-wateringly technical, and I want to make the point <laughs> that this is not a technology lecture. It is an exciting book that, uh, as Molly White from Web3 is going just great, said, is not a book you should start before bed if you've got to get up early the next morning because you'll be <laughs> up all night with it. That said, Bruce Sterling once wrote in his review of my book, Walk Away, that much of my work consists of make of me making and demolishing arguments that no one but me has ever advanced. He's <laughs> not wrong. So some of this argument is going to be a probably more familiar, less esoteric. This is a book about the kind of curdling of the vision of, of tech as a force for human liberation and into uh, a kind of nightmare of tech as a force for extraction and surveillance and manipulation that uh, I think we can place at the feet of the finance sector But there's also a very important technical core here, and it's one that I've been involved with for literally 20 years. So 20 years and eight months or so ago, a team from Microsoft came to the Electronic Frontier Foundation and presented us something called the Next Generation Secure Computing Base, which they also called Palladium, and which today we call Trusted Computing. And... uh, the idea here, and, and again, I apologize in advance for how gnarly this is. The idea here <laughs> is that if you have a computer, because it is like a universal Turing machine that can run any program, it is impossible for anyone else to know which computer your which which programs your computer is running. And on the one hand, that means that you could always put say, some surveillance tools that you're forced to run by your boss or by an abusive spouse or by, you know, your government, you could put them inside a virtual machine and they would never know it. They'd be ahead in a jar. They've never known it. You can also emulate old pieces of software inside a new piece of software. You can, you know, open up a browser window and uh, simulate a whole like Mac SE running System 7. Uh, in fact, you know, my little you know, laptop computer, middle of the range laptop computer here, I can open up 15, 20 browser tabs and emulate 20 Mac SEs without breaking Mm -hmm. a sweat. My fan doesn't even turn on. And so there's this like character of universality and it's both a feature and a bug. And it's a bug in some trivial ways. Like it's really hard for me to know whether you and I are playing a video game in which you are truly not running any like aim hack software. It's also a bug in that like I can't, um, run a server in the cloud and know for sure that the people who own that server aren't siphoning off my data. And it's also a bug in that um, 
I can't ask you, my trusted technical expert, to remotely look at what my computer is doing and tell me whether it's running any spyware because the spyware can just present itself to you as a not spyware application. And so this is the problem that Microsoft was setting out to solve. And the way that they were going to solve it is they were going to put another computer in your computer, right? A separate, fairly low powered, extremely kind of simple and easily audited computer that was going to be sealed in epoxy, mounted into the board in a way that it couldn't be removed without revealing that it had been removed. It was going to have like acid in an epoxy pouch on the top of the chip so if you tried to decap it and fuzz it or you know put in an electron tunneling microscope it would dissolve right and it was going to be this like tamper evident piece of hardware and this hardware could observe all the things going on in the other computer in the computer you interact with and you could ask it hey take your observations about my computer make a manifest about what my computer is doing like the bootloader and the operating system and the applications and the extensions and what's going on in the kernel and whatever, and make a signed cryptographically signed manifest of that and send that to someone else who wants to validate what kind of computer I'm running. This is called remote attestation. And it is like a genuinely new computing capability, one that we had historically lacked. It is, I, I would argue, as powerful and as complicated and as difficult to get your head around uh, and it's potentially troubling as like universal computing and and networking, uh, um, strong encryption, which is to say working encryption. It is like a new power and maybe even a superpower for your computer to allow multiple people who don't trust each other to nevertheless trust one another's statements about how their computers are configured. That is like a really powerful thing. Uh, if you think about work from home, you know, I was just at a friend's house yesterday who does a lot of commercially sensitive work and who has been targeted repeatedly by state actors and by uh, private corporate espionage as well as Fishers. He says he gets new employees and as soon as it hits LinkedIn that they're on the network, those employees get uh, get fished. People try to take over their home hmm. computers. And during remote work, this was a huge problem because suddenly his corporate perimeter was drawn around devices in people's houses and there were like extremely powerful adversaries trying to break into those computers and steal the data. And it was worth a lot of money. And, mm. uh, and so he wanted to be able to ask those computers how they were configured, not because he didn't trust the employees, but because he didn't trust those employees, um, technical capabilities, right? Uh, he wanted to give them a backstop in which their own mistakes wouldn't be fatal for their jobs and for the enterprise, right? So there's some like beneficial consensual ways to conceive of this. So this is the thing Microsoft came and presented to us. And we were like, wouldn't this let you determine whether someone was using open office and stop them from opening a word document or, 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 you know, indeed <laughs> right. I work, right. You know, uh, numbers, pages right. and keynote. And they were like, Oh yes, totally. And we were like, wouldn't this let you distinguish between people running SMB and Samba and keep them off the network? And they were like that mm. too. Right. And they were like, but maybe we could, you know, everyone in the enterprise could run a, a version of this that you trusted instead of one that we trusted. And, you know, it, it like, and some of those people, like one of them is a guy called Peter Biddle, who's I think mm -hmm. uh, an absolutely honorable fella who really did believe in this, but you know, Peter Biddle wasn't the boss of Microsoft and right. you know, this gun on the mantelpiece in act one had a severe chance of going off by act three. And so here we are at act three 
And 20 years after fighting about this, and it's got multiple guises, right? Digital rights management, trusted computing, um, UFE boot locking, uh, the broadcast flag, which is back. I don't know if you're following this. There's a new version of ATSC that's got DRM in it, and the FCC is likely to greenlight it, and the whole broadcast thing hmm. is going to be back again. You know, there have been so many names for this over 20 years, and they all boil down to this thing. Should your computer be able to be compelled to tell the truth? even when you would prefer that it lie on your behalf? Should there be a facility in your computer that you can't control that other people can remotely trigger? Are the costs worth the benefits? Is there a way to mitigate those costs? What, what are we, we going to do about this? And as I say, this is an argument that I've been having with myself for 20 years that basically no one else has advanced. <laughs> Although I have to admit that a lot of this comes from people like Seth Schoen and so on who are you know got there before me and are quite brilliant. Uh, also, you know, John Gilmore and Eric Blossom and, you know, a bunch of other people who've been having this fight for a long time. And, um, you know, trusted computing is everywhere. We kind of lost the trusted computing race, right? Um, yeah. Although the trusted computing advocates lost the trusted computing race too, because instead of having a separate chip that's like mounted in a self-destructive way on your board so that you can't uh, pry it off, and rather than limiting the model to remote attacks and not not you know phys physically co-present attacks and so on, we now have these things called like secure enclaves, which pretend right. that they are the same thing, but they're not. They're, it's just literally like someone in the chip design process has drawn a box around part of the chip <laughs> and said, we're going to look really hard at this box and make sure that there's nothing that we don't expect going on in it. And we're going to declare it to be functionally equivalent to having a whole separate chip that is both physically and, you know, logically secured, right? So they've kind of watered it down uh, as well, right? That, that pure vision that Biddle and his right. colleagues presented 20 years ago is nothing like what we've got now. What we've got now is a very weak sauce version of it. It's like if you've ever seen the video of the the guy who um, is standing outside a club and his job is to bat, pat people down, but he doesn't want to do the job. And so he just waves his people, his hands over people like like basically right. like a security guard doing Reiki. You know, that's the <laughs> that's the version we've got now. Right. We've got the pat down where the hands never touch you or right. where they barely touch you. Right. And um there are a bunch of people who've done some interesting and, to my mind, also potentially worrisome things with this. So like Moxie Marlinspike and some other people built a payment system that runs uh, alongside Signal uh, called MobileCoin that uses secure enclaves and not proof of work or proof of stake to uh, secure transactions across the network. And that's the that's like the MacGuffin of this book, right, is, is a MobileCoin-style right. uh, blockchain. Um, MobileCoin itself probably is going to tank. I actually gave them a thousand bucks when they started just kind of to keep my hand in and, and to like find out what was going on. You know, I made about five of these investments in my life because I wanted to know what was going on. I think I've lost right. that money. Uh, the CEO just quit and all the people <laughs> involved who quit. I didn't really expect it to turn into anything. And indeed, here we are. It hasn't. Um, but, uh, but I, I, um, I am, uh, I, I was and am interested in the power and the risk of this and what it says about trust, because this yeah. is a book about trust. And, you know, yeah. the, when we say I can trust you without having to trust your computer, what, or without I can trust your computer without having to trust you, what we mean is I can trust both the honor and skill of the engineers who designed your computer. 
And right. in many ways, that's a much harder thing to figure out whether you can trust. I don't know who those people are, right? I, yeah. I know you. I trust you. I'll tell you where right. I hide the spare keys to my house, right? But I'm, I am I don't know who designed the secure enclave for your phone. And so yeah. I don't know if I can tell them that. Yeah, I, I mean, uh, you know, that did strike me as one of the, the the really interesting takeaways from the book, which is an important point and has gotten some discussion elsewhere. But like, you know... I mean the 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 sort of mobile coin equivalent in the book is called trustless coin. Yeah. Uh and and you know there's a lot of you know the use of the the term trustless comes in in a lot of things especially in the cryptocurrency space people talk about you know uh having things be trustless. Um and and I think a point that you make very very clearly is like you know, no, like the, everything has trust. And the, the question is, where are you putting that trust? Mm-hmm. And you're pushing the trust to some other element, whether it is the engineers who design the secure enclave or the coders who create the code for, you know, some sort of uh, cryptocurrency or or whatever it is, or that, you know, the individuals that, you know, there there is trust, there has to be trust somewhere in the system. And the whole idea that something could be 100% trustless is, is kind of bankrupt. You know, uh, uh, Yes. Yeah. Well, and you know, so you and I have lived through the crypto bubble now, (laughs) and uh, I don't know where you stand on crypto, but you know, I feel like when I talk to crypto advocates that a lot of the things that they say rhyme with the things that I say, and a lot of them seem to want the same things that I want, but that we have some very sharp disagreements. And some of them are technical, right? I, I, I just, I think that there's like technical problems with blockchain that just are irreconcilable, but a lot of them are ideological. Right, that mm-hmm. the the point of uh, cryptocurrency seems to me to to develop a form of money that is counter solidaristic. That rather than being um, you know the product of a state that is levying taxes in order to create value in a currency, which is where money comes from. That's that's what makes money valuable. Is there's this liability that you can only settle. Uh, with that currency. So the the country, you know, the government issues the currency, and then they create demand on it by taxing it back. And then everything flows from there. If you if if everyone needs to pay taxes, then everyone will honor the currency because they need the currency to pay their taxes. And that's kind of the liquidity provision in the system. And crypto is like, we want to do one of these, but without the government and without the solidarity and without the need to, you know, provision a public purpose. And we're going to do it without having to trust each other either, because we're going to do that with math. And um, on the one hand, like the lack of a, um, a liability that you can't settle with anything but crypto makes most crypto pretty useless. Like the number of liabilities that you can settle with crypto, even at its peak, were pretty small, right? There was like right. JPEGs and ransomware, right? And like the <laughs> ransomware was actually pretty important, right? Like there was a non-discretionary yeah. demand for crypto to pay ransomware. And so there were a lot of people who would exchange their perfectly cromulent fiat money for your funny money because they wanted their data, right? But um, the other thing here is that for all that this project is about not having to trust each other, on the one hand, because there's no way to make a program that's free from bugs because of the halting state problem, because finance is always going to have loopholes and so on, uh, these things were like riddled with fraud, right? So not trusting someone actually turned out not to be a way to to, uh, prevent fraud. It turned out to be a way to create uh, an unjust fraudulent yeah. market but also every time it was mitigated and the reason there was so much money for the fraudsters to steal in the begin in there to begin with it was all grounded in solidarity right look at the slogans of the cryptocurrency movement we're all going to make it 
right? Uh, like yeah. that is not the slogan of people who are, you know, uh, uh, eating Ayn Rand novels for breakfast. We're all, <laughs> you know, um, and and like, look at what happened with the first DAO, right? And the first smart contract yeah. where they get yep. hacked and then they're like, yeah, I know we've got this project that is entirely grounded in the idea that we're making an immutable ledger that no one ever changed so that we don't have to trust each other. We can only trust the math. But now that we're all $50 million poorer, can we all agree that we'll just get together and fork the ledger <laughs> right. and, and take the money back? Or even, you know, there's some pretty important scholarship on the early years of Bitcoin looking at, at the... Uh, analysis of the chain and showing that there was a relatively small number of people who all knew each other who at any time could have uh, colluded to steal all the Bitcoins. And they didn't. And the reason they didn't wasn't because they were acting as rational actors. It was because they believed in the project. They, they, it was something that they had solidarity with one another over. And so I just don't think you can get rid of solidarity. And I know why people don't like it. I, I, I find it as much of a pain in the ass to work with other people as you do. I promise you, right? <laughs> but, th- you know, there is a limit to what you can do on your own. The things that two or more people can do together are by definition superhuman. And cooperation is a superhuman power. Yeah, interesting. That wasn't where I was expecting this discussion <laughs> to go. But <laughs> but no, I, it, it is a really good point. It's sort of an interesting thought exercise in terms of like, you know, so this is going to go off on a tangent on, on my own, uh, inspired by what you were just saying. And, and I've been thinking a lot lately about, um, I, I'm trying to think of the best way to describe it. And I, I, I haven't, I haven't, clarified my thinking on it so this is going to come out messy sure go. but but <laughs> but you know I, i've been trying to think a lot about like this is going to sound wrong but like why people are stupid uh which is not sure. what i mean yeah, yeah <laughs> but sure. but like why do people why, why the yeah yeah why 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 we run into all of these sort of very complex situations in which people you know, have ideas and they have theories and those theories turn out to be wrong but often the reason that they're wrong is that there are way more variables at play than any single human being can actually capture and and understand and sort of piece out all of the different ways that this might play out. And, and, and so, you know, there's this element that I, and I've been thinking a lot about it and, and it's also because, you know, I've been working on a lot of projects lately, which are with a small team of people as opposed to, to by myself. And I am constantly amazed that once you, have it like a team of three people, how many like, like people pick out the obvious things that I totally missed, right? Where it's like, you well, you can't do that because of this. It's like, oh, right, you just made this project way better than if I had just done it on right. my own right. because of these little things. And it's just because there are so many variables and everything, nothing plays out in a, in a straight line because there's so many different forces working on things at once. Um, and, you know, it, it strikes me that that some of what you're saying is is another version of that um, in, in, in just recognizing that like having more minds working together on something is actually better because no human mind is possibly yeah. smart enough to understand all this. Yeah, I mean, you know, you and I have been watching Riley as Elon Musk takes up residence uh, rent free in our <laughs> houses, in our brains and does yes. a bunch of things that to him must seem very reasonable. And, you know, I, I am torn as to whether or not he's a very stupid person. 
Uh, <laughs> you know, he certainly acts very stupidly sometimes, but I know lots yes. of very smart people who act very stupidly sometimes. I would, you know, without wanting to call myself a very smart person, I certainly act very stupid sometimes. So, <laughs> you know, I think the difference is, and the reason that, you know, we like uh, this kind of, um, uh, this kind of thing is that uh, it, 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 people's follies can be kept in check, right? That's the difference yeah. between a pluralistic system and a unilateral one. And there's a lot of things that I that I want, you know, to have unilateral control over. But I also sometimes get myself in trouble, right? I mean, I'm minded <laughs> now of like the, uh, the 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 first time. I don't know if that's this is still true, but it used to be the first time you use sudo on a on a Linux box. You got a right, very stern right. warning, right? You were about to do something <laughs> that could get yourself into a lot of trouble. And I tell you what, uh, I have gotten myself into a lot of trouble. Um, and right. I have, I, I have literally had the wrong, um, uh, the wrong, uh, directory root when I typed sudo rm minus r star. Oh no. I have literally been oh, in no. the wrong directory and done that. Right. That like, oh, you know, yeah, it is entirely possible for smart people to make really dumb mistakes. And in fact, you know, <laughs> I know Dunning Kruger doesn't replicate and all, uh, but it's there are yeah. many ways in which it's easy for smart people to make dumb mistakes. Yeah. I mean, I, th this also brings up another you're just bringing out all of my like random you know, uh, nascent theories that I, I, that I have in the back of my head that I keep meaning to work through and I haven't yet. So all of this is half baked ideas sure. <laughs> that you're getting me to, to out into the world in, in the form of this podcast. But the other thing I, I had this idea, um, maybe a decade ago and, and it's been, it's sort of like, and I thought about it for a while and I meant to write about it and then I never did. And then I've been thinking about it again lately. And it was this idea of like the sort of benevolent dictator uh, mm -hmm. in tech concept. And, and where, where it started from was I was looking at, you know, kind of like how tech had developed. And again, this was like a decade ago and sort of where we were in tech and in part like the success of Apple and how, to some extent, at that point, like Apple seemed to be going against a whole bunch of things that that I thought were important for mm -hmm. like successful innovation in terms of openness and collaboration and all these ideas. And you had Apple, which was like, you know, our way or the highway, or you know, Steve Jobs way or the highway, right? Like that. This is this is the way this is going to go. You're holding not it going wrong. To yeah, right. Exactly. Right. Your your it's your phone is not working because your hand is in the wrong spot. Kind of, you know, like, and and but like it was incredibly successful and and generating a ton of cash and everyone loved the products and and there was this argument. So I, I you know the way I was formulating it was like you know yeah you know there are times that a benevolent di dictator is is useful they're able to smash through barriers and force things in a certain way sure. because as a community you're not going to to get there but you know the risk is that the benevolent dictator goes bad and the benevolent dictator always goes bad in some way or gets replaced by a less benevolent dictator yeah. or a a stupid dictator and so you're always at some point going to run into to one of those issues and and the the reason this has sort of come back in my head recently is that I've been thinking about it in the Elon Musk con context, right? Uh, and you know whether or not you know Twitter certainly had problems, and Twitter was not a a you know a, a huge success, and and there were definitely issues with Twitter. But suddenly, when Twitter is run by 
a, a dictator, yeah. uh, you know, you, you start to see, you know, you see real cracks in, in terms of how the system works. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So to try and relate this both to um, enshittification and the book here. Yeah. Uh, I, um, I am old now. I assume you are old too. I think we're about the yes. same age. I, I, I'm turning 52 on Monday. Uh, I'm going to be a full pack uh, of cards. And, uh, and there's uh, jokers, two jokers. You're missing. Plus jokers. That, that'll be 53 and 54. And then the blank card and the one with the rules. Uh, yes. <laughs> I, I, I am old and I am uh, at this age far more interested in how things fail than how they work. Right. Mm-hmm. Having been through the failures, right. Having had the bitter experience of what it, what it means when your backup doesn't work, what it means when you put your notes in a company whose name is Evernote that then goes <laughs> under, right. Yes. What it means to like lose your data, lose your community, lose your friends, um, lose your job, lose your uh, valuable goods, lose access, lose your hardware, I am so much more interested in how things fail than how they work. I, I mentioned my mm-hmm. my little laptop beside me. It's a framework laptop, right? It's the self-maintainable laptop. I run Ubuntu Linux on it. And like I um, break it all the time because I always break my laptops and I fix it all the time. Like literally <laughs> yeah. yesterday, I put a new keyboard on because I, I, I could have done an assembly level repair to try and fix that the what's there's I, I basically i've got a lot of crumbs caught under the uh, touchpad this is embarrassing okay. to admit but there's like gunk <laughs> under there and so the click wasn't working reliably and uh, i would periodically have to find a hard surface and bang my laptop on it to dislodge <laughs> the trackpad i was like oh fuck it it's only like 80 bucks i'm gonna just get a whole assembly i put it in six <laughs> screws removed they're captive screws i don't have to do anything with them and then i attach this little cable and then i cluck it in and i didn't i i'm not supposed to but i didn't even power it off first and uh, and I, I brought it back up and I was still logged into my desktop. So, you know, there we go. Right. I care about how it fails. Um, and I and there are some things that I could probably do with a MacBook like it. You know, there's a new battery coming for this. But right now, the battery life isn't it's good, but it's not great. Yeah. And there are there are MacBooks that have better battery life. There's a new battery that is uh, backordered that they have. And when they ship it, I'm going to be able to take the old battery out. And they're selling little cases that you can put the old battery in and turn it into a power bank, which, you know, that's super cool. But in the meantime, it's not working as well as a MacBook would on that axis. But I care how it right. fails. Right. I used to administer like networks of Macs. I used to write a million dollars worth of Apple purchase orders a year. Uh, and I have been through every single Apple Care failure mode imaginable. And like me with a laptop, I'm beached. Like I'm yeah. screwed if I don't have a laptop that works. I dropped this laptop on a book tour in Edinburgh and uh, like I got out of the cab. I was like six feet off the ground, right? Five, six feet off the ground. I dropped the laptop. It falls on this Oof. corner and I crack the screen. Uh, and because it was Ubuntu, I was able to narrow the working part of the screen <laughs> to just the like three inch band right. that it worked in. But I called the manufacturer and I was like, you got to help me. Do you have any inventory in the UK? Can you FedEx it to my hotel in London? I'll be back tomorrow. And they did. And I got back and waiting at the, and I got back at midnight. It's a long train back from Edinburgh. And there was a laptop screen waiting uh, for me. I had never swapped the screen before. So I, I, I looked it up on my phone. It's like an 11 step process. It took me 15 yeah. minutes. I was half asleep and it worked. And, yeah. you know, I did a conference presentation the next morning. I care how things fail, right? That is the thing I care about more than anything. So people are asking me like, are you going to get on threads? 
right? Because Threads is like activity pub based or might have an activity pub, you know. At, at, at some point. At some be, point, yes. right. Uh, yes. Are you going to get on Blue Sky? Because Blue Sky is built around a protocol that is supposed to be uh, federatable. And yes. I'm not going to do it. And I'm, I am basically, it, I would be amazed. I mean, never say never, but I would be amazed if I ever again signed up for a social media service that wasn't already federated. Not federatable, mm. not federation right. on the roadmap, but actually federated. Because anyone who relied on Twitter the way I do professionally, you know, I earn my living with it. I do my pursue the activism that is my life's work through it. It is a very important thing to me. Who's lived through the enshittification of that understands that um, how it works is in the final analysis a lot less important than how it failed. And, uh, and so it's federated for me, right? That's not, that's my, that's my future. Right. And, um, and Marty Hench is a 67 year old, uh, high tech. This is just, just as a reminder, the the character, the hero of the book. Yes. The protagonist of the book. He's a 67 year old high tech forensic accountant. He spent 40 years in Silicon Valley unwinding tech bros finance scams. And he's seen it all. Uh, his origin is that he drops out of MIT in the early eighties because he likes computers too much. And I think we have all known people who dropped out of computer science (laughs) programs because they like computers too much to get a degree in them, especially in those years. He discovers spreadsheets. He falls in love with them. He goes to a two-year community college to get his CPA ticket. And he realizes everyone else there is trying to figure out how to hide money with spreadsheets and that he's going to use spreadsheets to find money and that he's smarter than them and he has the attacker's advantage and he's going to outsmart all of them. And that's what he does for 40 years. But in those 40 years, Marty has watched as people who are unconstrained in the way that we just described in that musky in on Twitter way, talk themselves into making one compromise after another until the things that they presided over became so unshittified that they were unfit for any purpose. And, you know, my kind of microeconomic theory of like what happened to say Google search quality is that mm-hmm. if you're Google and you have 90% of the search market, more than 90% of the search market, that there's no way to grow the revenue from search it per se, right? You're not going to get mm-hmm. more people searching. And so you have to find ways to extract more revenue from existing activities. And that right. no one at Google sitting in, you know, the Plex, Larry and Sergey don't sit down and say, right, which of our users' priorities are we going to uh, sacrifice to increase the bottom line? Instead, what happens is that every product manager's KPI is grounded in showing growth in revenue. Right. And each one of them makes a trade-off that on its own is um, probably not so great as to make Google bad, but that it collectively add up to something that makes Google terrible. And they are each of them pulling out Jenga blocks, right? But they don't have insight into the other people that are pulling out Jenga blocks. And to the extent that they do, they're like, that guy is going to pull out my Jenga block if I don't pull it out first. And only one of us is going to get a bonus this Christmas equal to 90% (laughs) of our annual salary. And it's going to be the one who pulls out the most Jenga blocks, right? And so, you know, as my friends on the right are always telling me incentives matter, right? And like, the, uh, a firm undisciplined by either competition or regulation is a firm which from the top down and the bottom up inevitably takes a bunch of compromises that sacrifices the values of its users, its suppliers, its stakeholders, and then ultimately its employees as well 
to a series of small short-term gains that collectively destroy what they've built. Yeah. And that, that is the, the inshittification process that you've, you've been describing and I keep quoting you on, um, and, uh, you know, it, it sort of comes up repeatedly throughout a bunch of your, your work as well, just kind of highlighting that and definitely the focus on why things fail. Um, yeah. And, and how to make them fail better, right? How to make them yeah. like, you know, the one, the reason I like interop is because I think that it's going to let us, um, help people leave platforms. Right. And I think leaving a platform is one of the most important things. First, because I think it will discipline the platform. Right. Yeah. It, it'll make them it'll make them behave themselves better. And second, right. because um, if it doesn't, because there are lots of people, you know, see Elon Musk who can't be convinced and who assume they're the smartest guy in the room and keep doing so right up to the moment that their self-driving car drives into a uh, a wall and kills them. <laughs> right? That yes. um, it will give us a way to escape. And those are the two most important things there are. Yeah. It's interesting. You know, um, you know, you know, you're, so you're not using blue sky and, and you, you nope. wouldn't join until, until, until there's federated. actual federation. I mean, for Christ's sake, yeah. blue skies board includes the guy who sold yes. Twitter to yeah, Elon yeah, yeah. Musk. I'm, I'm, I'm aware. I'm aware. Uh, I, I've been thinking there is something. So, so I'm, I'm assuming you haven't seen this. I thought there was an interesting statement made by, by the lead developer of Blue Sky recently, which I've been, which has been stuck in my brain, and I'm going to write something about it at some point soon. Which is he described one of the ways that they are thinking about the building of the the protocol and the federation aspect is that they need to view their future company as an adversary. Um, sure and. And and that struck me as a really interesting statement and one that I haven't really heard otherwise. And and I think gets at to some extent, you know, that maybe, hopefully, at this point and, and, and it's true, and it sort of it, it plays into the incentification aspect, which is like, you know, in the early days when you are, you know, building and capturing you know, a market and you're you're focused on on creating you know, value for your users, right? That's what is attracting people sure. to, to use the, the system. And then as you grow, you run into all of these things in which the system fails. And so it's interesting to me, you know, I don't know of any other, any other organization that has, you know, so explicitly stated it, this recognition that if we're successful, we will go down the incentivization path yeah. and create all sorts of problems. And therefore we need to build not just about competition not just about you know what other factors are out there in the world that might not might harm us but we have to recognize that our own future company may be an attack vector as well yeah well the word you're looking for here is uh ulysses pact right uh this is a term out of economics that's right that's that's correct uh it's you know ulysses as you know the story ulysses uh, wanted to hear the sirens uh but uh, everyone knew that if you heard the sirens singing when you sailed through their sea you would jump into the water and so they plugged their ears up with wax and instead ulysses said tie me to the mast and no matter how i beg don't release me and so he got to hear the mermaids sing he took this um moment where he was weak or where he was strong rather and anticipated a moment where he would be weak right and he took the action and you know i'll give you a version of this that happened in my own life so i helped start a, a dot com in the late 90s a, a peer-to-peer free and open search tool called open cola that eventually ended up part of open text uh, um, tim bray's company 
And uh, we had committed to releasing our software under GPL. And we did. And our investors' lawyers got freaked out and demanded later on, when the market tightened up after the dot-com crash, that we revoke the GPL. And <laughs> they held all the cards, right? We couldn't make payroll if right. uh, if they didn't give us the next tranche of money they'd promised us. And they had enormous discretion to decide whether to do it. And unlike, say, six months before, when there had been a lot of money sloshing around and we could have gone and gotten terms from someone else very easily, there was no terms available for anyone. Uh, right. Everything was was circling the drain. And so we had no leverage. But what we did have was the GPL, which is irrevocable, right? right? And so we just said, like, guys, we understand, but, like, it's just not on the table. It's just not a thing we yeah. can do. And and so, yes, I think that it is very wise and very um, hopeful that the Blue Sky team are thinking about Ulysses Pax. I think it would be far more convincing if they made one. Yes, yes. Right? Yeah. Uh, I, I like Ulysses packs too, but if I announce that I'm on a diet and I don't throw away any of my Oreos, <laughs> you shouldn't take me seriously. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, yes. Yes, you're right. Yeah, let's see, let's see what happens. Um, so, so I feel like we're not talking enough about the book. Sure, <laughs> let's talk like, about the book. <laughs> like, we, we, we should bring this back Well, let me say book. that, you know, um, yeah. one, one important thing about this book that I've been thinking about, and we talked about this before we started recording, is the points of contact and divergence between Marty Hench, a 67-year-old forensic accountant, and Marcus Yalo, the 17-year-old protagonist right. of the Little Brother books. And it, I think it, again, connects in shittification to these books and to this sense that we're living through the great rug pull, you know, to use some crypto jargon here, where, you know, Marcus is a kid who has found in technology all the things that I think, well, I certainly, and I think you found so yeah. great about it. It's its power to connect, to liberate, to um, uh, allow us to coordinate uh, its source of delight and autonomy and privacy and self-determination. And he is watching as an outside force, in his case, the Department of Homeland Security, is trying to not just take that away, but reverse it, right? Take this technology right. that he loves uh, and turn it into a force for, for uh, confounding all of those values. And Marty is a guy who's at the end of a 50, 40 year losing war that right. he's been fighting on that score. And he has watched it all go away. He's watched the web become what, what Tom Eastman says, five giant websites filled with screenshots of text from the other four. <laughs> and right. uh, and he um, is living a much more bittersweet end of his life. And he is taking stock along with many of his peers and colleagues of what they built and whether it's redeemable and how it can be redeemed. And I think that's the conversation. This is why enshittification is resonating with so many people. And, you know, maybe it's the end of the zero interest rate policy and the fact that there's the interest rates have gone up and the millennial lifestyle subsidy has ended. Um, or, or maybe it's just late stage capitalism and the end game of monopoly. Uh, but whatever it is, I think that there is a sense among many of us who've been around for a long time uh, is that it's... Um, it's it's the end game. Mm -hmm. Um, interesting. And and so I mean, is there? Well, I, I guess so. It, it, is there optimism 
in 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 red team blues and and if so you know what is it so what there is is hope i don't know if i've said this to you before it's a thing i say a lot which is that optimism and pessimism are both fatalism uh, like I, <laughs> right. I i don't think that um things are just gonna get better and yeah. i don't think that things are just gonna get worse i think that what we do matters uh you right, know right. I, I, I this is why i'm cheerleading lena khan uh, maybe you and I can talk at some point about what, what she's doing with Amazon and why I think you're wrong about it. I'm sure we could have a productive okay. discussion. Short answer is, uh, while other companies are worse than Amazon, they didn't put in writing that they knew that their customers were confused and then did it anyway. Sure. And that in a, it, when it's hard to prove intent, uh, it can be easier if like the CEO of the company has a folder on their desktop called Men's Rea that's full of documents like <laughs> let's do premeditated murder underscore one final final dot doc X, you know? <laughs> Um, so yeah, I think that I, I, you know, that said, I, I think that like the way that we get to a better place is by ascending a gradient towards that place, right? It's by taking a step, moving up towards a better place that, uh, that is in some way materially superior to the position we find ourselves in now. And, and then looking around at the newly revealed terrain to see whether there's yet another step we could take that wasn't visible because it was occulted from where we stood before. And from there, taking the next step and the next that, you know, just like with any gnarly computer science problem where you're trying to understand data that if you tried to enumerate it, you would, um, you know, run out of uh, time before you ran out of terrain. And, you know, especially if that terrain is adversarial (laughs) and the people, you know, there are other people trying to rearrange the terrain as you're as you're trying to enumerate it to figure out the best path through it. You need a heuristic. You need hill climbing. You can't you can't just chart the course from A to Z or Z. Um, But um, you know, the the source of hope here is that Marty is surrounded by people who share his vision and his lament. Right. And some of them have an enormous amount of resources. Some of them don't. Some of them have gotten very rich and some of them haven't. But all of them care and they want right. something better. And none of them are happy with where we ended up. And like, you know, back to solidarity and mass movements and that things are only possible if lots of people do them together. If if you've already convinced a bunch of people that things need to change, you've solved like three quarters of the challenge, right? Like that's right. the hard part, right? Is like convincing other people. Now, the next hard part is convincing them what to do about it. <laughs> and, right. you know, we may disagree very sharply. I think you and I have both talked to people who are like, we can't make Facebook smaller because then they won't have the resources to do content moderation and, you know, people will get harmed. And that's like not a wrong argument, but it's also not a right one because they do a bad job of it. And like, (laughs) at least if people could leave, then maybe they could find a community where they could do small scale community moderation. That is, that doesn't bring them to harm, you know? Um, So that's the, you know, like getting people to agree on where to, on what to do next is going to be hard. Um, You know, witness all the people on Blue Sky who I think are wrong to be there, right? But, but yeah, I, you know, it's, uh, but, but the fact that we all agree that, that we need something better, that's amazing, right? And that's, that's like the hope at the end of the Marty Hench cycle. Yeah. Interesting. Um, Okay. Yeah. I mean, um, Gosh, I, I feel like I can keep, I, you know, the two of us can keep talking for, sure. for a very, very long time, yeah. but, but we, we should, we should wrap this up in some way. The, the one thing I'll say is like, uh, in, in, in what you were just talking about, um, 
you know, I wonder, like, here's another thing that I've been thinking about. I don't, I don't know what, what you've done, but you just are pulling out all the like weird things that have been going through the back of my brain and that I haven't articulated yet and, and making me articulate them on the spot because you, you're getting close to all of these ideas that I've been thinking about as well. Um, and, but, you know, you talked about how we're sort of like, you're viewing it as like entering the end game, right? Yeah. Um, and, and there's a part of me that's been like, I, I've, I've viewed some of that as well, but there's been a, a strong part of me that has been fighting back against that. Um, Hmm. and I keep trying to convince myself that it's, it's sort of human nature to view life and everything happening in the world, like a book or a movie where there is a beginning, a middle and an end. Sure. And I keep trying to convince myself, like, that's not true. That's not how the world works. The world keeps going and things keep changing and there are ups and downs and there are cycles and there are good things and there are bad things. And that is always going to happen. And so I worry a little bit about viewing it as like end game in that, that sort of, you know, ignores that reality. Is, am, am I wrong? Am I missing something? So look, I think that, um, well, okay, so let me give you an example from my politics, which I don't think are your politics, which is leftist politics. And uh, I grew up in the left. I grew up in anti-nuclear proliferation, abortion rights organizing, labor rights. Uh, you know, I, I got kicked out of school in the seventh grade for um, using school resources to build an anti-nuclear uh, proliferation <laughs> banner. Uh, and then we got on the front page of the newspaper the next day carrying it. Tim Wu was there because uh, <laughs> we went to elementary school together. Uh, and at the time, we didn't know it, but we were at the tail end of something that was um, that made our lives so much easier. And that was organized labor. That mm-hmm. organized labor had won so many important victories during the 30 uh, glorious years, the the 1945 to 1975, and had built out just like a financial base, an infrastructural base. Like if we needed a hall, we had a hall. If we needed a photocopier, there was a photocopier. If we needed a phone to make phone calls from, there was a phone. Um, There were, if you needed to get people out to a demonstration, if you needed to wheat paste 10,000 posters overnight in the city, right? Like that was what the union movement gave us. It was the floor underneath us. And we didn't realize that it was going away. We didn't realize that Reagan mm-hmm. and in Canada, where I grew up, Mulroney had gutted it and that it was vanishing. And as a result, things just got harder, harder and harder and harder. Like I went to a summer camp that was organized. It, it had grown out of Quakerdom, but it was run by a co-op that was secular uh, and it was oriented around you know, kind of political causes. It was really great. And it was on an island in Eastern Ontario that had been given to the co-op by this woman who'd gotten involved in the co-op movement, whose father had been the first admiral of the Royal Canadian Navy. So she inherited this island that had been their summer home. And then all of a sudden, like the co-op's finances just kept getting worse and worse. I was actually on the board of the co-op at this point. I joined Hmm. I joined the board when I was 17. We just like, people couldn't afford to come anymore. Um, The people who would like plug the holes in our annual 
because we're a nonprofit. The the people who plug the mm-hmm. holes in our annual uh, balance sheet just couldn't come up with it. And at first, it wasn't a big deal. And then it got worse and then worse and worse. And then we got to this point where it's like, Jesus Christ, we're going to have to sell the island. And again, like the island had been through points where it had been in a crisis and someone was always able to come through, right? There was like uh, an organization or an institution or something and they just weren't there, right? And then like over and over again, this started to happen. We lost the island. The island's not ours anymore. Mm-hmm. It's gone. Um, and, you know, it was a huge loss. And over and over again, this happened one thing after another. And um, then I think the turning point was the Battle of Seattle. It was 1999, the WTO battle. And I think that was the first mass movement that it included labor, don't get me wrong, but that wasn't right. built on the infrastructure that labor had 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 given to us that we took for granted that was just hmm. there all the time like literally like if you needed a bathroom right like there was a union hall you could go to the bathroom and like just these kind of foundational things that we right. just took for granted battle of seattle was the first one organized without it and we are now 24 years away from the battle of seattle that was 1999 and we are almost caught up in terms of infrastructure because we built a lot of new digital tools to where we were in terms of the startup costs associated with with fighting a new cause, making a new political movement right. or, or organizing a new group to where we were when I was like 13 years old. Uh, and that's what it means to be at the end of something, right? You You lose a lot and your fight, like everything you do just gets like massively harder, right? So I'm like, I'm about to have a Kickstarter for the next audiobook. I, we were talking before, I've got this book, The Internet Con from Verso coming out. That's an interop book. I've done my own audiobook on it. And like part of the way I do these Kickstarters for the audiobooks, because I want to sell them with DRM, is I just go through, and you've probably gotten one of these. I DM everyone who follows me on mm-hmm. Twitter. I literally open up Twitter's DM interface and I type A and I look at all the autocorrects. Uh, autocompletes and I find everyone who might be someone who I might ask. And then I type AA and then I type AAA and then I type AAB. It takes me two to three days to do this. Right. But I made $150,000 off my last Kickstarter. Right. Uh, and, you know, covered the bills. It made the book viable. It um, let me have an audiobook that wasn't controlled by. Uh, Audible that wasn't locked to Audible's platform forever. That was DRM free. It it was like it was a lot of work, but it was totally worth it. If Twitter goes away, I, I'm gonna have to work twice as hard. I'm gonna have to work five times as hard to get yeah. that same level of success, right? So like, it's not it's not the end game in the sense that the world will end, but in the same way that like if the climate emergency gives us. Um, 100 million climate refugees in the American landmass in the next 20 years, that everything else we're trying to do, including things about the climate emergency, are going to be 10 times harder, which right. is the plot of my next novel, which is called The Lost Cause that comes out in November, <laughs> right? Everything's going to be 10 times harder. It's not going to be the end of the human race. The human race will right. go on, right? right? But boy, that's not going to be fun. I mean, obviously, it's not going to be fun for the 100 million climate refugees. It's yeah, not going to yeah. be fun for anyone else either, though, right? Like everything is going to suck. <laughs> I mean, it's it's funny because uh, this is this is not not pushing back on anything that you said, but but just again, sort of like this this slightly different perspective, which which I find 
interesting, which is, and I don't even know if you know this or not, but like my, my undergraduate degree is in labor relations. Oh, I didn't right? know that. So, That's interesting. Yeah. So I went to college and I learned all sorts of stuff about labor history and, um, you know, the, the origins of collective bargaining and, you know, all sorts of things around that. And so I have a slightly different perspective on all of this, which is, you know, I kind of went into that as also sort of thinking, you know, a fan of, of labor and everything that labor had brought about and came out of it saying, what a fucking mess that was <laughs> like realizing everything that had gone wrong. And, and in the same way that like, um, it, it was one of those things where I sort of came out of that saying conceptually how important it was for collective bargaining to exist and for the early unions to do what they did and how important that was and how much of that structure that you talked about was important. But at the same time, how much of it had been messed up and squandered, riddled sure. with corruption and all sorts of other problems out of it. And so it, like my lesson out of, you know, four years of learning about the labor movement in all sorts of ways was like that it was, it, it, it was sort of destroyed from the inside and that we needed something different and something new. And to me, where a lot of that sort of energy and thought was channeled was into the internet and technology as a new way of creating digital infrastructure to, to empower individuals and then to come together and to do the same sorts of things that we saw collective bargaining create you know, 150 years earlier or less than that. Um, and so, you know, to me, I go back again to this, like, they're like, it's not end game. It's just sort of ups and downs and, and different, different approaches and different, different things happening because, you know, as always, some things look one way from, from the outside. And then when you see how, how the sausage gets made behind the scenes, it's often much messier. Um, and so again, sure, like, but, but I mean, so don't yeah. you think that in 25 years when this internet is gone and we're doing something else <laughs> yeah, that yeah. there aren't going to be people who are going to look back on the things that we did and the missteps we made and say, it was so important, but how many opportunities did they squander? How sure. much did they throw away? I mean, look, they're going to look at fucking yeah. crypto and they're going to say, Jesus <laughs> yes, Christ, yes. they did that. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I I agree. I mean, I I think we're we're mostly in agreement. We just have a, a slightly different perspective on on how how it works and how it plays out. Yeah, I mean, um, I'm not going to say that like labor never made any missteps or that there was oh, no, a mob no. or whatever, right? I'm I, but what I am going to say is that like I I I don't want those. I I my answer to that is improving the labor movement, not not jettisoning it. I I I I totally get it. I totally get it. Um, I you know. I did come out of it with the with the belief that it had to be burnt to the ground and started again from scratch because there was so much, you know, again, who knows? Maybe I just had like crazy bad professors or whatever. <laughs> well, I do think that there is a hegemonic narrative about labor that buries the good sure. things and, uh, I, yeah, you know. Yeah, uh, and I, I definitely didn't. Yeah. And I didn't come out of it with that. I didn't like I, I, I as I was saying, it was more the modern sort of version of, of what the labor movement had become. Um, and there were, you know, de definitely. Anyways, I think we're getting very far yeah. away from, from where we want to be. But but, you know, uh, to bring it all back around. Yes. The book. The book is excellent. Thank uh, you. And it, and and it is the the beginning of of you said at least a three part series. Yeah, uh, uh, they go backwards uh, in time. So so my editor, you know, he said I want three of these and offered me a giant whack of money to do it. And uh -huh. uh, 
I, I need a giant whack of money because <laughs> life is expensive. And so I wanted to do it too. Plus I enjoy writing the book, but I had this problem, which is this is unequivocally Marty Hinge's last adventure. And, you know, there is precedent for what you do after you've written the last adventure and someone wants a sequel and that person has the power to offer you something you really want. Um, Queen Victoria offered, uh, uh, um, Arthur Conan Doyle on knighthood if he would bring Sherlock Holmes back <laughs> and he did and my editor is a very powerful man in New York publishing a senior vice president with the Macmillan company but he can't offer me a knighthood uh, and <laughs> I did not want to bring Marty Hinch back out of retirement he's earned it and so I realized that I could write these backwards in time right. uh, and uh, that moreover if I did so I would have no continuity problems because right. causality runs backwards. I'm not foreshadowing anything. <laughs> I'm backshadowing, right? Right. Uh, and so um, the next one of these is called The Bezel, not like the thing that goes around your screen, B-E-Z-Z-L-E, John Kenneth Galbraith's term for um, the magic interval after a con artist has your money, but before you know that it's a con, during which both of you feel like you're better <laughs> off, which you know we could describe the last 15 years of the tech sector, <laughs> you know, uh, and it's a it's a it's a prison tech novel uh, about a guy who makes a bunch of money selling a company to Yahoo, but pisses off the wrong people and ends up in a California prison where their right to letters, a library, and in person visits and phone calls have all been replaced with a tablet that extracts giant amounts of money from them, and it's just the tip of the iceberg for a kind of uh, grotesque and, and often lethal corruption. And Marty is his friend on the outside. And then the the third one, which comes in in January of 2025, is called Picks and Shovels. And it's Marty's first adventure. He comes to Silicon Valley after dropping out of MIT. And he ends up working for a weird, but not particularly weird by historical standards, if you remember the early PC era, a PC company called The Three Wise Men, run by a Mormon bishop, a Catholic priest, and an Orthodox rabbi, who are in fact uh, faith predators <laughs> who uh, sell uh, like they have a pyramid scheme where they sell these proprietary computers where you know the floppies have got uh, specially damaged sectors so they can only be read by their super expensive <laughs> floppy drives and the um, the the printers are sprocketed so they only take specially sprocketed fanfold paper that costs 10x what normal printer paper costs and so on and um, and you know Marty ends up uh, having to figure out what to do because there's client and he's on the wrong side. And so it's it's a fun early 80s San Francisco novel. Jello Biafra is running for mayor in the background. It's, <laughs> it's fun. Nice. <laughs> well, that sounds good. Uh, have, have, have all three been – I mean, they're all I done. assume this – they're all yeah. done? Wow. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, they're That's all done cool. along with a bunch of other books. There's a Little Brother short story collection. There's a graphic novel adaptation of uh, Unauthorized Bread. Um, huh. There's a um, – what else is there? There's uh, the – next novel which is um a climate novel called the lost cause uh about truth and reconciliation with um you know anarcho-capitalist seagoing wreckers and uh white nationalist <laughs> militias uh and um uh the two other marty hench books and then this non-fiction book from verso the internet con how to seize the means of computation and that's all between now and the end of 2025 wow People people yell at me and say I write too much, but I I <laughs> do not write anywhere near as much as you do. So uh, it's a, it is a filthy habit. It is a filthy, <laughs> filthy habit, as I say. Uh, and my family would like me to spend a lot more time at home, and I would <laughs> right. also like to do so. Well, uh, on on that note, uh, I think we will wrap this up. But you should definitely, if you have not read it yet, and I know I already recommended that you get Red Team Blues and read it, but I, I will recommend once again, uh, get it 
uh, or you can get the audiobook, the Will Wheaton non-DRM'd uh, audiobook, um, and and check out either one. They are very very fun reads, yeah, uh, and you will enjoy it. And you might learn a little bit about all of the other stuff that we we were discussing in this podcast as well. Excellent. Yeah. And with Will on strike as of today with SAG-AFTRA, uh, yes. uh, it's going to be a while before I can hire him to read another book. So, you know, this is your this is your chance. Yes. Yes, exactly. Well, anyways, Corey, thanks again. It's always fun to talk with Lovely you, to talk uh, with you too. Thanks, w- whether on the mics or off the mics. But yes. uh, I very much enjoyed it. And yes. uh, thank you for everyone listening as well. And we'll be back next week. To grab a shovel and think of the tap. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get. To grab a shovel and think of the tap. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get.